When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 6. Signor Moschetti Relates an Adventure On the evening which follows the very afternoon, during which Richard Marwood made his first and only essay in the milk trade, the Count and Countess de Marole attend a musical party. I beg pardon. I should, gentle reader, as you know, have said a soiree musicale at the house of a lady of high rank in Belgrave Square. London was almost empty, and this was one of the last parties of the season. But it is a goodly and an impressive sight to see, even when London is, according to every fashionable authority, a perfect Sahara. How many splendid carriages will draw up to the awning my lady erects over the pavement before her door when she announces herself at home? How many gorgeously dressed and lovely women will descend therefrom, scenting the night air of Belgravia, with the fragrance wafted from their waving tresses and bordered handkerchiefs, lending a perfume to the autumn violets struggling out of fading existence in Dresden boxes on the drawing-room balconies, lending the light of their diamonds to the gas-lamps before the door and the light of their eyes to help out the aforesaid diamonds, sweeping the autumn dust and evening dews with the borders of costly silks, and marvels of lions and spitafields, and altogether glorifying the ground over which they walk. On this evening, one range of windows, at least, in Belgrave Square, is brilliantly illuminated. Lady Lunderson's musical Wednesday, the last of the season, has been inaugurated by a scene from Signora Sorici of Her Majesty's Theatre and the Nobility's Concerts. And Mr. Argyle Fitzbertram, the great English basso baritono, and the handsomest man in England, has just shaken the square with the buffo duet from the Cenerentola, in which performance he, Argyle, has so entirely swamped that amiable tenor, Signor Moretti, that the latter gentleman has serious thoughts of calling him out tomorrow morning. Which idea he would carry into execution if Argyle, Fitzbertram, were not a crack shot and a pet pupil of Angelo's into the bargain. But even the great Argyle finds himself, with the exception of being up to his eyes, in a slew of despond, in the way of platonic flirtation with a fat duchess of fifty, comparatively nowhere. The star of the evening is the new tenor, Signor Muschetti, who has condescended to attend Lady Lunderson's Wednesday. Argyle, who is the best-natured fellow as well as the most generous, and whose great rich voice wells up from a heart as sound as his lungs, throws himself back into a low easy chair. It creaks a little under his weight, by the by, and allows the Duchess to flirt with him, while a buzz goes round the room. Moschetti is going to sing. Argyle looks lazily out of his half-closed dark eyes, with that peculiar expression which seems to say, "'Sing your best, old fellow,' My G in the bass clef would crush your half-octave or so of falsetto before you knew where you were 
or your pretty Jane either. Sing away, my boy. I've some friends down in Essex who want to hear it, and the wind's in the right quarter for the voice to travel. They won't hear you five doors off. Sing your best. Just as Signor Muschetti is about to take his place at the piano, the Count and Countess de Marole advance through the crowd about the doorway. Valerie, beautiful, pale, calm as ever, is received with considerable impressment by her hostess. She is the heiress of one of the most ancient and aristocratic families in France, and is, moreover, the wife of one of the richest men in London, so is sure of a welcome throughout Belgravia. Moschetti is going to sing, murmurs Lady Lunderson. You were charmed with him in the Lucia, of course. You have lost Fitzbertram's duet. It was charming. All the chandeliers were shaken by his lower notes. Charming, I assure you. He'll sing again after Moschetti. The Duchess of C is a prize, as you see. I believe she is perpetually sending him diamond rings and studs. And the Duke they do say, has refused to be responsible for her account at stores. Valerie's interest in Mr. Fitzbertram's conduct is not very intense. She bends her haughty head, just slightly elevating her arched eyebrows, with the faintest indication of well-bred surprise. But she is interested in Signor Moschetti, and avails herself of the seat her hostess offers to her near Arad's grand piano. The song concludes very soon after she is seated, but Moschetti remains near the piano, talking to an elderly gentleman who is evidently a connoisseur. "'I have never heard but one man, Signor Moschetti,' says this gentleman, "'whose voice resembled yours. "'There is nothing very particular in the words, "'but Valerie's attention is apparently arrested by them, "'for she fixes her eyes intently on Signor Moschetti,' "'as though awaiting his reply. "'And he, my lord,' says Moschetti, interrogatively. "'He, poor fellow, is dead. "'Now, indeed, Valerie, pale, with a pallor greater than usual, "'listens as though her whole soul hung on the words she heard. "'He is dead,' continued the gentleman. "'He died young, in the zenith of his reputation. "'His name was, let me see, I heard him in Paris last. His name was... Delancey, perhaps, my lord, says Moschetti. It was Delancey, yes. He had some most peculiar and at the same time most beautiful tones in his voice. And you appear to me to have the very same. Moschetti bowed at the compliment. It is singular, my lord, he said. But I doubt if those tones are quite natural to me. I am a little of a mimic... And at one period of my life, I was in the habit of imitating poor Delancey, whose singing I very much admired. Valerie grasped the delicate fan in her nervous hand so tightly that the group of courtiers and fair ladies, of the time of Louis Quatorze, dancing nothing particular on a blue cloud, are crushed out of all symmetry as she listens to this conversation. I was, at the time I knew Delancey, "'merely a chorus singer at the Italian opera Paris. "'The listeners draw nearer "'and form quite a circle round Moschetti, "'who is the lion of the night. "'Even Argyle Fitzbertram pricks up his ears "'and deserts the Duchess in order to hear this conversation. "'A low chorus singer,' he mutters to himself, "'so help me Jupiter, I knew he was a nobody. 
This passion for mimicry, said Moschetti, was so great that I acquired a sort of celebrity throughout the opera house, and even beyond its walls. I could imitate Delancey better, perhaps, than anyone else. For in height, figure, and general appearance, I was said to resemble him. You do, said the gentleman, you do very much resemble the poor fellow. This resemblance one day gave rise to quite an adventure, which, if I shall not bore you, he glanced round. There is a general murmur. Bore us, no, delighted, enraptured, charmed above all things. Fitzbertram is quite energetic in this business, and says, No, no, muttering to himself afterwards, So help me, Jupiter. I knew the fellow was a nuisance. But the adventure, pray let us hear it, cried eager voices. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I was a careless, reckless fellow, quite content to put on a pair of russet boots, which half swallowed me, and a green cotton velvet tunic, shorten the sleeves and tight across the chest, and to go on the stage and sing in a chorus with fifty others, as idle as myself, in other russet boots and cotton velvet tunics, which, as you know, is the court costume of a chorus singer from the time of Charlemagne to the reign of Louis the Fifteenth. I was quite happy, I say, to lounge onto the stage, unknown, unnoticed, badly paid, and worse dressed, provided, when the chorus was finished, I had my cigarette, dominoes, and my glass of cognac in a third-rate café. I was playing one morning at those eternal dominoes, and never, I think, said Moschetti, parenthetically, had a poor fellow so many double sixes in his hand, when I was told a gentleman wanted to see me. This seemed too good a joke, a gentleman, for me. It couldn't be a limb of the law, as I didn't know a farthing, no Parisian tradesman being quite so demented as to give me credit. It was a gentleman, a very aristocratic-looking fellow, handsome, but I didn't like his face, affable, and yet I didn't like his manner. Ah, Valerie, you may well listen now. He wanted me, he said, continued Moschetti, to decide a little wager. Some foolish girl who had seen Delancey on the stage and who believed him the ideal hero of romance and was only in too much danger of throwing her heart and fortune at his feet was to be disenchanted by any stratagem that could be devised. Her parents had entrusted the management of the affair to him, a relation of the ladies. Would I assist him? Would I represent Delancey and play a little scene to open the eyes of this silly boarding-school miss? Would I, for a consideration? It was only to act a little stage play off the stage, and was for a good cause. I consented. And that evening, at half-past ten o'clock, under the shadow of the winter night and the leafless trees, I... Stop, stop! Signor Moschetti! cried the bystanders. Madame! Madame de Merole, water, smelling salts. Your lady Emily, she has fainted. No, she has not fainted. This is something worse than faint in this convulsive agony in which the proud form rise while the white and livid lips murmur strange and dreadful words. Murdered, murdered and innocent, while I, vile dupe, pitiful fool, was only a puppet in the hands of a demon. At this very moment, Monsieur de Merole, who has been summoned from the adjoining apartment where he has been discussing a financial measure with some members of the lower house, enters hurriedly. 
"'Valerie, Valerie, what is the matter?' he says, approaching his wife. She rises, rises with a terrible effort, and looks him full in the face. "'I thought, monsieur, that I knew the hideous abyss of your black soul to its lowest depths. I was wrong. I never knew you till tonight. Imagine such strong language as this in a Belgravian drawing-room, and then you can imagine the astonishment of the bystanders. "'Good heavens!' exclaimed Signor Moschetti hurriedly. "'What?' cried they eagerly. "'That is the very man I have been speaking of.' "'That? The Count de Merol. "'The man bending over the lady who has fainted.' Petrified Belgravians experience a new sensation, surprise, and rather like it. Argyle Fitzbertram twists his black mustache reflectively and mutters, So help me, Jupiter, I shan't have to sing Scots we have, and shall be just in time for that little supper at the Café del Europe. Chapter 7 The Golden Secret is Told, and the Golden Bowl is Broken. The new tiger, or as he is called in the kitchen, the temporary tiger, takes his place on the morning after Lady Lunderson's Wednesday, behind the Count de Merle's cab, as that gentleman drives into the city. There is little augury to be drawn from the pale, smooth face of Raymond de Merle, though Signor Moschetti's revelation has made his position rather a critical one. Till now he has ruled Valerie with a high hand, and though never conquering the indomitable spirit of the proud Spanish woman, he has, at least, forced that spirit to do the will of his. But now, now that she knows the trick put upon her, now that she knows that the man she so deeply adored did not betray her, but died the victim of another's treachery, that the blood in which she has steeped her soul was the blood of the innocent— What if now, in her desperation and despair, she dares all, and reveals all? What then? Why then, says Raymond de Merol, cutting his horse over the ears with a delicate touch of the whip, which stings home, though for all its delicacy, why then never shall it be said that Raymond Merol found himself in a dilemma without finding within himself the power to extricate himself? We are not conquered yet, and we have seen a good deal of life in thirty years, and not a little danger. Play your best card, Valerie. I've a trump in my own hand to play when the time comes. Till then, keep dark. I tell you, my good woman, I have hothouses of my own, and don't want your Covent Garden exotics at two pence a bunch. This last sentence is addressed to a woman who pleads earnestly for the purchase of a wretched bunch of violets, which she holds up to tempt the man of fashion, as she runs by the wheels of his cab, driving very slowly through the strand. "'Fresh violets, sir, do, sir, please, only two pence, just two pence, sir, for the love of charity. I've a poor old woman at home, not related to me, sir, but I keep her. She's dying, starving, sir, and dying of old age.' "'Bah, I tell you, my good woman, I'm not Lawrence Stern on a sentimental journey, but a practical man of business,' I don't give macaroons to donkeys or save mythic old women from starvation. You'd better keep out of the way of the wheels. They'll be over your feet presently. And if you suffer from corns, they may probably hurt you, says the philanthropic banker in his politest tones. 
"'Stop, stop!' suddenly exclaims the woman, "'with an energy that almost startles even Raymond. "'It's you. Is it, Jim? "'No, not Jim. He's dead and gone, I know. "'But you, you, the fine gentleman, the other brother. "'Stop, stop, I tell you. "'If you want to know a secret that's in the keeping of one who may die "'while I am talking here, stop. "'If you want to know who you are and what you are, stop.' Raymond does pull up at this last sentence. My good woman, do not be so energetic. Every eye in the strand is on us. We shall have a crowd presently. Stay, wait for me in Essex Street. I'll get out at the corner. That's a quiet street, and we shall not be observed. Anything you have to tell me, you can tell me there. The woman obeys him and draws back to the pavement, where she keeps pace with the cab. "'A pretty time this is for discoveries,' mutters the Count. "'Who I am, and what I am. "'It's the secret, I suppose, that the twaddling old maniac in blind Peter "'made such a row about. "'Who I am, and what I am. "'Oh, I dare say I shall turn out to be somebody great, "'as the hero does in a lady's novel. "'It's a pity I haven't the mark of a coronet behind my ear "'or a bloody hand on my wrist. "'Who I am, and what I am. "'The son of a journeyman tailor, perhaps,' or chemist's apprentice, whose aristocratic connections prevented his acknowledging my mother. He is at the corner of Essex Street by this time, and springs out of the cab, throwing the reins to the temporary tiger, whose sharp face, we need scarcely inform the reader, discloses the features of the boy, Slosh. The woman is waiting for him, and after a few moments' earnest conversation, Raymond emerges from the street and orders the boy to drive the cab home immediately. He is not going to the city, but is going on particular business elsewhere. Whether the temporary tiger proves himself worthy of the responsible situation he holds, and does drive the cab home, I cannot say. But I only know that a very small boy, in a ragged coat a great deal too large for him, and a battered hat so slouched over his eyes as quite to conceal his face from the casual observer, "'creeps cautiously, now a few paces behind, "'now a hundred yards on the other side of the way, "'now disappearing in the shadow of a doorway, "'now reappearing at the corner of the street, "'but never losing sight of the Count de Marolle "'and the purveyor of violets "'as they bend their steps in the direction of Seven Dials. "'Heaven forbid that we should follow them "'through all the turnings and twistings "'of that odiferous neighborhood where foul scents, foul sights, and fouler language abound, whence Mayfair and Belgravia shrink shuddering, as from an ill it is well for them to let alone, and a wrong that he may mend who will. Not they who have been born for better things than to set disjointed times aright, or play the revolutionist to the dethronement of the legitimate monarchy of Queen Starvation and King Fever, to say nothing of the princes of the blood, "'dirt, drunkenness, theft, and murder. "'When John Jones, tired of the monotonous pastime "'of beating his wife's skull with a poker, "'comes to Lambeth and murders an Archbishop of Canterbury "'for the sake of the spoons, "'it will be time, in the eyes of Belgravia, "'to reform John Jones. "'In the meanwhile, we of the Upper Ten Thousand "'have Tattersall's and Her Majesty's Theatre, and John Jones, who low Republican says he must have his amusements too, has such little diversions as wife murder and cholera to break the monotony of his existence. 
The Count and the Violet Cellar at last come to a pause. They have walked very quickly through the streets, Raymond holding his aristocratic breath and shutting his patrician ears to the scents and the sounds around him. They come to a stand at last in a dark court before a tall lopsided house with irresolute chimney-pots, which looked as if the only thing that kept them erect was the want of unanimity as to which way they should fall. Raymond, when invited by the woman to enter, looked suspiciously at the dingy staircase, as if wondering whether it would last his time, but at the request of his companion, ascends it. The boy in the large coat and slouched hat is playing marbles with another boy on the second-floor landing, and has evidently lived there all his life. And yet I'm puzzled as to who drove that cab home to the stables at the back of Park Lane. I fear it was not the temporary tiger. The Count de Marolle and his guide pass the youthful gamester, who has just lost his second half-penny, and ascend to the very top of the rickety house, the garrets of which are afflicted with intermittent ague whenever there is a high wind. Into one of these garrets the woman conducts Raymond, and on a bed, or its apology, a thing of shreds and patches, straw and dirt, which goes by the name of a bed at this end of the town, lies the old woman we last saw in Blind Peter. Eight years, more or less, have not certainly had the effect of enhancing the charms of this lady, and there is something in her face today more terrible even than wicked old age or feminine drunkenness. It is death that lends those livid hues to her complexion, which all the cosmetics from Atkinson's or the Burlington Arcade, where she minded to use them, would never serve to conceal. Raymond has not come too soon to hear any secret from these ghastly lips. It is some time before the woman, whom she still calls Silicons, can make the dying hag understand who this fine gentleman is and what it is he wants with her. And even when she does succeed in making her comprehend all this, the old woman's speech is very obscure and calculated to try the patience of a more amiable man than the Count de Marolle. "'Yes, it was a golden secret. "'A golden secret, my dear. "'It was something to have a marquee for a son-in-law, "'wasn't it, my dear?' mumbled the dying old hag. "'A marquee for a son-in-law? "'What does the gibbering old idiot mean?' muttered Raymond, "'whose reverence for his grandmother "'was not one of the strongest points in his composition. "'A marquee? "'I dare say my respected progenitor kept a public house, "'or something of that sort. "'A marquee?' "'The Marquis of Granby, most likely.' "'Yes, a Marquis,' continued the old woman. "'Eh, dear, and he married your mother. "'Married her at the parish church one cold, dark November morning. "'And I've got the certificate.' "'Yes,' she mumbled, in answer to Raymond's eager gesture. "'I've got it, but I'm not going to tell you where. "'No, not till I'm paid. "'I must be paid for that secret in gold. "'Yes, in gold.' They say that we don't rest any easier in our coffins for the money that's buried with us. But I should like to lie up to neck in gold sovereigns, new from the mint, and not one light one amongst them. Well, said Raymond impatiently, your secret. I'm rich and can pay for it. Your secret. Quick. Well, he hadn't been married to her long before a change came in, in his native country, over the sea yonder, 
said the old woman, pointing in the direction of St. Martin's Lane, as if she thought the British Channel flowed somewhere behind that thoroughfare. A change came, and he got his rights again. One king was put down, and another king was set up, and everybody else was massacred in the streets. It was, I don't know what they call it, but they're always doing it. So he gets his rights, and he was a rich man again, and a great man. And then his first thought was to keep his marriage with my girl a secret. All very well, you know. My girl for a wife while he was giving lessons at a shilling apiece in Parlez-vous Francais and all that. But now he was a marquis, and it was quite another thing. Raymond by this time gets quite interested. So does the boy in the big coat and the slouched hat, who has transferred the field of his gambling operations in the marble line to the landing outside the garret door. He wanted the secret kept, and I kept it for gold. I kept it even from her, your mother, my own ill-used girl, for gold. She never knew who he was. She thought he'd deserted her, and she took drinking. She and I threw you into the river when we were mad drunk and couldn't stand your squalling. She died. Don't ask me how. I told you before not to ask me how my girl died. I'm mad enough without that question. She died, and I kept the secret. For a long time, it was gold to me, and he used to send me money regular to keep it dark. But by and by, the money stopped from coming. I got savage, but still I kept the secret. Because, you see, it was nothing when it was told, and there was no one rich enough to pay me to tell it. I didn't know where to find the Marquis. I only knew he was somewhere in France. France, exclaims Raymond. Yes, didn't I tell you France? He was a French Marquis. A refugee, they called him, when he first made acquaintance with my girl. A teacher of French and mathematics. And his name, his name, asks Raymond eagerly. His name, woman, if you don't want to drive me mad. He called himself Smith when he was teaching, my dear, said the old woman with a ghastly leer. What are you going to pay me for the secret? Whatever you like, only tell me, tell me before you... Die? Yes, dearie, there ain't any time to waste, is there? I don't want to make a hard bargain. Will you bury me up to my neck in gold? Yes, yes, speak. He is almost beside himself and raises a threatening hand. The old woman grins. I told you before that wasn't the way, dearie. Wait a bit. Silicons, give me that old shoe, will you? Look you here. It's a double sole, and the marriage certificate is between the two leathers. I've walked on it this thirty years and more. And the name, the name, the name of the Marquis was De, De, She's dying. Give me some water, cried Raymond. De, S, the syllables come in fitful gasps. Raymond throws some water over her face. De Seven, my dearie, and the golden secret is told. And the golden bowl is broken. Lay the ragged sheet over the ghastly face, Silicons, and kneel down and pray for help in your utter loneliness, for the guilty, being whose soul has gone forth to meet its maker, was your only companion, and stay, however frail that stay might be. Go out into the sunshine, Monsieur de Marolle, that which you leave behind in the tottering garret, shaken by a paroxysm with that fitful autumn wind, is nothing so terrible to your eyes. You have accustomed yourself to the face of death before now. 
"'you have met that grim potentate on his ground, "'and done with him what it is your policy to do with everything on earth. "'You have made him useful to you.'" Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.